me today is the Honorable Brian Peckford. Uh, Brian served as the Premier of Newfoundland from 1979, when I was born, to 1989, during which time he participated in uh, authoring the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and repatriating the Constitution uh, to Canada. So Brian was involved with the other premiers and the uh, and the Prime Minister at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and they spent, uh, I think, 17 months deliberating. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, so it wasn't a it wasn't a short process. They they really took their time on this. They kind of tried to cover all the angles and make make sure that Canadians had documents that would uphold their rights. Um, prior to that, I believe all we really had was the Bill of Rights to protect us. Is that accurate? And that only protected some Canadians because it was a federal law. Okay. And could only could only cover federal jurisdictions, so it was incomplete. So from 1867, when the country was formed through the BNA Act to 1960, there was no mention of individual rights and freedoms at all. The Canadians from 1867 until 1960 uh, lived under British common law and customs and conventions. So if you, as a Canadian before 1960, had an individual right or freedom uh, action or you thought you did and your lawyers thought you did, the lawyer would have to search out the common British common law to see cases that were similar to yours to use as an argument in your favor or any convention, meaning any custom that was consistent over time uh, that would also help you in your case. And it was all unwritten. There was nothing written. This is the big thing. In 1960, John Diefenbaker introduced a Bill of Rights which identified individual uh, rights and freedoms and that they were to be protected. But it was only a federal law and therefore only covered federal jurisdiction. It never covered all of Canada and all the people of Canada. That's why the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 81 was so important, is because what we were doing was bringing in a Charter of Rights and Freedoms for individuals in Canada, not in federal jurisdiction, not in provincial jurisdiction, but in all of Canada. That's the key to the Constitution that Canadians don't understand. It's national. It's the only document that's national. Everything else is federal or provincial, you understand. So there's a big mis a myth out there, misunderstanding really, not a myth, a misunderstanding that when a person in Canada says federal, they think it means national, and it doesn't. The whole nature of a federal state is, is that the powers are shared between a federal central government called the federal government and the various states or provinces. If, you want, if you're in France, it's all with the central government. If you're in England, it's all with the central government. Well, they have a little bit of change there now in Scotland and Wales recently, but generally the constitution of, the, of England for centuries was all uh, centered in one government, the central government, same way in France. Germany, Australia, the United uh, States is like us. They're federations with the power shared between the central government and the other units called states or provinces, okay? And so federal in Canadian terms simply means the federal government, the things that the federal government does or has done. Province or provincial means provincial governments and provincial acts that the governments have passed under their powers. So that's the big, big thing with the constitution. It is the only national document and it brings all of Canada together. <clears throat> so the BNA Act was our first piece, which was a, a Constitution Act. 
It was the Constitution Act of 1867, the BNA Act, or the British North America Act, because we were part of British North America. America went its own way, broke away from the United States, and had its own country with no more linkages to England. We didn't do that. So when we had the BNA Act, we still had linkages to England. So there was no, no written Bill of Rights from 1867 to 1960. And then, as I say, John Diefenbaker brought in the Bill of Rights, but it only covered certain Canadians who were under federal jurisdiction. That's why the Constitution Act of 1982 and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is so important, because it covers everybody. And it is a Constitution Act, not a federal act. And so now, under the Constitution Act, we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And as you say, it was 17 months of negotiations, which got broken up because the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, left the table and said, I can't negotiate with you guys, can't do it. There's no, no way, you guys are too difficult to deal with. We had about a list of 12 items that we had to go through. Anyway, <clears throat> he, he left in the house, left the table, didn't come back, passed a, a law in the House of Commons uh, to unilaterally patriate the Constitution and unilaterally add his own version of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's when the provinces split, 10 provinces split. Eight provinces said you can't do it. Two provinces went with the federal government and said you could. Ontario and New Brunswick were the two who stayed with the federal government on this action. We took them to court, in the court of Newfoundland, in the court of Quebec, and in the court of Manitoba. And it all ended up in the Supreme Court of Canada on September the 28th, 1981, where the court ruled that was a time when the judges were friends of the law more than they were friends of the politicians. Because a lot of the people on the court at the time were friends of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, including Bor Alaska, the Chief Justice. But nevertheless, when they rendered their decision on September 28, 1981, it said the eight provinces are correct. You cannot do what you're trying to do constitutionally. What you're trying to do is unconstitutional. You must have a majority of provinces on your side to bring about these changes because these changes affect the provinces. And anything that affects the provinces must have their consent. And this comes out, and, and by the way, that ruling was based upon custom and convention. It wasn't written in the BNA. So the, the, the Constitution of Canada was the BNA Act plus any customs or conventions or British common law. One of the customs and convention that caught Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He couldn't do it because every custom and convention from 1867 until 1981 showed that any time the provinces of powers were affected, they were consulted and they had to agree. And so he lost. And so he came back to the table for one last time on November 3rd, 4th, and 5th of 1981, only two months later. And then we finalized the deal on the last day of the convention as a result of a proposal that I presented on the night of the fourth to the group of eight. And they agreed with some changes, brought it to the, all first ministers of the group and eight the next morning at breakfast. They all agreed again, no changes, and ordered me or asked me to present it to the full first ministers, including Ontario, New Brunswick, and the federal government later that day, which I did which ended up being the Constitution Act of 1982 with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's the so, brief history. That's, uh, that's a different version than the, than the, what did they call it, the Night of the Long Knives that we hear all the time. 
there's there's books written on it. And even in the Encyclopedia Canada, Canada Encyclopedia and all the rest of it, they got it all wrong. Uh, there was no Night of the Long Knives. This was a, a group of authors right after the, the thing was, was signed who got together with three uh, attorneys general, John Cretchen, who later became prime minister, Roy Romano of uh, Saskatchewan, and the AG, Roy McMurtry of Ontario. And uh, apparently, from what I can, the best information is that Mike Duffy, who's now a senator and of some infamy, as we know, because mm -hmm. of his problems with the Senate and going back and forth to PEI, he lived in Ottawa and all that. He did a scrum or whatever with those three AGs who alleged that they had a couple of pieces of paper that they were talking about in a kitchen in the Shadow Laurier Hotel, which later became the Charter, right, became the Constitution that night. Nobody else knows anything about it. Meanwhile, that night, the 4th, I met with four provinces to see if my little comprom compromise had any legs. And they said it did. That was BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and myself. And those three said, yeah, I think, Brian, you might have something here. Alan Blakeney was in on from the start, Premier of Saskatchewan. We had uh, Lahid on the phone, Bennett on the phone. And when they all said, yeah, and they had their deputy ministers present, then we enlarged the group and went looking for Quebec. There's the night of the long knives. They weren't in their rooms. They weren't in their suite. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Uh, and we later found out that they were over in Hull having a late dinner. This is the night of the long knives. So we had no way of bringing Quebec in on the, the talks that were quite crucial. We only had one day left. Uh, and uh, we knew that the prime minister was not going to extend at the time. He, he, he was quite stubborn. And so we had to get it done. And so we went ahead with it without Quebec because we couldn't find it. And the next morning, by the way, at breakfast, they did have a chance to see it all before we talked about it in formal setting. And so they saw that the, the whole document wasn't large, charter is not large, and read through it. But their, their position was right from the start that they were going to oppose it because it didn't give Quebec any special status. It didn't. They were scared that some of the things might impose upon their rights and so on. So they opposed it. So I got seven to one at that meeting. Seven prompts out of the eight agreed. And they elected me to be the spokesman going forward to all the first ministers because I was the one who had started in the beginning the night before. And so then I presented the day in the afternoon to all the first ministers. And then with some changes, uh, it became the Constitution Act of 1982, uh, uh, became the Patriot Act of 1981. Patriation Act of 1981, which when it became legislation the next year, the wording changed to the Constitution Act of 1982. Okay, that's, that's, that's what happened. I put that in writing now, put it in my book, Someday the Sun Will Shine and Have Not Will Be No More, which was a bestseller in 2012. And all the documents are in the back. I'm the only one who's produced any documents, le legitimate documents of the time of my proposal when I presented it on the 4th, the night of the 4th, morning of the 5th, and the afternoon of the 5th. There's The documents are all in the back of that book. And nobody, and that's 2012, this is 2022, nobody to this day has challenged one syllable that's in that book. Well, it's pretty hard to challenge uh, the only person left who was there. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's, uh, you know, it's fascinating how history can be written off of a, a myth or an urban legend and then 
you know, you, you convince millions of people that it's the truth because it's repeated enough times. And, and we're seeing that now from our legislators and in our courts. We're seeing absolutely these, no question. Yeah, we're seeing these myths being yep. just continued to be spoken all the time and, and people are buying it. And I don't buy it. And that's why I, I, I came to meet you that the first time in, in Parksville there, because um, yes. I realized that it is critically important to get this information right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And exactly. And, and that's and that's where I'm at. Um, yeah. So one thing I, we should do is for those people who don't know who you are um, and what you've been up to, do you want to just take a moment to to kind of go over how you were involved in this in the first place? Um, maybe even why you decided to get into politics and, and, and uh, okay. serve as the premier. Okay. Back in, uh, I, I graduated from Memorial University with a bachelor's in education to be a teacher, a high school teacher. <clears throat> I also said, did some postgraduate work in history and, uh, and, and other subjects, French literature, as a matter of fact. But uh, I did teach school. I taught high school in Springdale, Newfoundland for four or five years. But through university, I, I became involved in the student council and uh, became active then in public affairs within my environment. And then later when I became a teacher in Springdale, Newfoundland, I got interested. So it was always sort of somehow in my blood, even though nobody in my family or in my ancestry were involved in politics. I'm the first one. Really, really odd, but somehow I got hooked. And I think it was partly due to my years at university when during the summertime to get enough money to go back to the university, I would take um, social work jobs in isolated places around Newfoundland that are not now isolated today, or most of them are not isolated. Some of them still are. On the Labrador coast and in Northeastern Newfoundland primarily, that were still no roads and some of them didn't even have electricity. But I was able to get a job if I went there. And most of the kids going to university wanted to be in the urban centers. And so it was easy to get a job, make application, because I knew they didn't want to go to these isolated places. They wanted to have fun during the summertime, rather than uh, go and have <laughs> to travel around an open boat and all the rest of it around the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. So when I went and applied, I found this out right away from the person I had to apply to, who, by the way, later became a deputy minister of mine many years later. And he was, he was my boss I had to apply to for a temporary job back in the 60s. Anyway, make a long story short. So I witnessed Newfoundland, and I'm perhaps one of the only few now alive, who were in all of these communities back in the 60s, when just before they got the road, just after they got the road, just before they got electricity, after they got electricity, how they were being treated by the authorities. And it was absolutely horrendous. And so I think that had a big impact upon me, those five summers. So I'm back in Springdale, Newfoundland as a high school teacher, and I see things going on that I just couldn't agree with. And I found it ridiculous. And so I gradually became interested in what was going on on the provincial level. Why was this happening? And of course, you never get any, <laughs> any real answers, even in those days. And so I thought that the only thing I could do <clears throat> was to get involved in political party. Well, I got involved with the Liberal Party first, a very short period of time, uh, when Smallwood was still Premier. 
and he, um, the reason why I got involved, because I was uh, opposed to what he was doing, but he said he was going to change and democratize the party and have district associations in all the province, all the districts of the province become a very democratic party because it was an authoritarian party from the time he, he took office in 1949 until 1971. And so I, uh, um, I accepted his promise, if you will. I uh, believed his promise, only to find out within six months that it was all a sham. And so I left the party altogether and sought out the Conservative Party, uh, which I think in the town of 3,500 at the time, I could find four or five people. <laughs> there, may be, there might have been more, but they wouldn't say. But these four were willing to say. And so we formed a, the first conservative district association in that writing. And I then supported the conservative candidate in October 1991. The conservatives had never won in that writing since 1832. In its history, it had never been conservative. Only one in the province. So the chances of my conservative candidate winning weren't great. He was a small businessman in Springdale, but he did very well. And I, I was his campaign manager. My first job as a campaign manager was with this, with this gentleman who's since passed away. <clears throat> and he polled better than any other conservative candidate ever. So he did well, but he lost. And we lost quite significantly, even though it was the best we've ever done. <laughs> that, that was October 71. Well, when he lost, uh, we reassembled the, the PC Association and I became the president. And Smallwood, there was a sort of a hung election, so we had to have another election in March the next year. And I determined that I was going to run. And so I ran for the Conservatives in March 72 and became the MLA, the first Conservative MLA in the history of that district at the age of 29. That's pretty significant. And another very significant uh, point is during when you entered into all this, uh, Newfoundland was still freshly within Confederation, were they not? Yeah, well, we were in the Confederation for a while, but it was only one premier for all that time. We we're 23 years in mm -hmm. when I got involved. So Newfoundland just, was, was a bit of a holdout um, in, in joining Confederation. And then, uh, you know, you end up being the, the premier and yeah. you were kind of a holdout when it came to the constitution that Pierre Elliott Trudeau wanted to push through, right? So totally. maybe uh, the, the, the Newfie stubbornness has done us a favor in this country, I would say. Yeah, well, you know, and I was always a holdout in the sense that what was then the constitution before the Constitution Act 1982, we weren't being treated fairly under that constitution. So I fought Trudeau in the courts. I'm perhaps the only first minister in Canada who went to the Supreme Court of Canada three times. So I tell lawyers when they find out, they say, well, I thought you were a lawyer because the way you talk with the constitution, you know a fair amount about it. And I had to explain to them that the whole, whole 10 years <laughs> I was premier, there were lawyers in my office every week because here I was involved in three different Supreme Court. I mean, that's not small stuff going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And because they were very complex issues, I had lawyers from all over the world, not just the ones that were in my that were in my province or were my minister of justice or part of the lawyers in the minister of justice i sought wherever the experts were that's where i was going to go and i'm something like you i think in that sense you're you're quite the the, the digger that's what my father had and that was my uh, uh, nickname by my dad he called me digger 
and we know what digger means, right? You're digging around that, trying to get at stuff. You don't believe the first thing that comes by your bow, right? But I'm like, I'm like that. Very much a skeptic and a cynic, and, and, and you had to prove to me. And I had a really good teacher my last year in high school who was a, a godsend for me. My father and this teacher were godsends for me. They, uh, they, they recognized that, yeah, you know, you're a bit uh, rambunctious and you're a bit outspoken, but you're always asking questions. You're always seeking something, and that's, that's good. It's important. Yeah, very, very important. So they, they really changed the trajectory of my life. And, and I always have to mention them when I get into this, get into it in this detail that you're allowing me to get into it today. And so from the day I became premier, I was not sort of one of your ordinary uh, premiers for leaders of the Conservative Party in Newfoundland. As a matter of fact, they didn't even support me during the, uh, the campaign because they didn't think I could win. They didn't know me very well. I was a high school teacher in Springdale, Newfoundland. Uh, okay, I got the nomination. They didn't even realize that the nomination, I had about four other candidates running against me, and I beat them all, and the people in the writing knew everybody else better than they knew me. But I beat them at their own game, campaigning, getting people out to, out to the meeting, getting my former students involved. Well, they were my students at the time. And some of them got involved unknown to me and had a big a big presentation at the meeting and so on, a completely new way of doing politics. And so when I got elected, I got elected because of me, not because of the party. The party has essentially disowned me when I was running because they didn't give me a chance of winning at all, even though we had done better in that fall election and they should have known more about me and how I got nominated and so on, but they didn't. Uh, and uh, so I, when I got elected as a, an MLA, I was the conservative MLA, all right, progressive conservative MLA. But every man and his dog in the writing knew, as well as I did, that I got elected on my own merits. I got elected on my own merits as Brian Peckford. And so <clears throat> that led me to run a party uh, that was open, that was honest, that paid its bills. And that was audited. Even my leadership campaign, I had audited. You go back and find out how many leadership candidates in any province or the federal government that had audited financial statements afterwards of our leadership campaign. And guess what? This I never talk about. I had a surplus and I gave it to the party. So um, what I'm hearing is that you believe in accountability. I believe in accountability. I believe in rigorous accountability and transparency. And so that's the way I ran the province and I tried to run the party. And uh, for us to be honest, the leaders before me didn't, they left debts and all the rest of it. Uh, and, uh, but I, I, I pay, paid my way and I always uh, pride myself on, on doing that. So from day one, uh, I was a bit of an outsider and then I started taking on the federal government uh, as it relates to the Upper Churchill Power Contract, as it relates to our offshore, fought them on the fishery, and so on. And so I, uh, I was a, a, a person in, and people said, give up the fight, Brian. Why you fought the good fight? Now, sign on the dotted line. I've heard that. Sign on the dotted line. And I said, no, I am not. And I, I don't know how many times I went to cabinet and said, if any of you want to leave, as this battle um, comes higher now, the heat is on, just get up and leave. I understand. No problem. You don't have to stay here with me if you're not supporting me. 
You don't have to support me. You can just you can leave, just resign. But as long as you're here, and we do it through cabinet, do it through caucus, and it becomes the the the, the decision, then then you've got to be outside. Not ninety percent. Not ninety five percent. Not ninety eight percent. One hundred percent. That's the way I ran. That's the way I operate. And so I guess you can get a good sense where I'm coming from. And therefore, I wasn't going to stand idly by and look at how we relinquish our powers over the fishery when we joined Canada. We relinquished just with all the powers to the federal government. Somebody sitting down on the on the, the, the canal in, in Ottawa deciding about the North Atlantic fisheries. What a joke is that? And so I was, you know, a, a, a person with a cause from the day I became premier until the day I left and still carry that with me to this day. So now when I see the very thing that I was a part of and helped create in 1981, the Charter Rights and Freedoms in particular, 114 years of confederation without a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The, United, the Americans had one in 14 years after they became a country. 1776, 1791, they had a Bill of Rights. We didn't have one for 114 years and then we get one a written sacred document, a constitution, which is supposed to be permanent and have permanent values. And then they see that eviscerated by a whole bunch of so-called politicians and lower court judges. Well, talk about being mad about the fishery and mad about uh, offshore and mad about uh, hydropower in Newfoundland. I'm mad as a Canadian about how our country is being operated and how it's not following the rules that have been set down, that they're making up their own rules, that they're trying to put a round peg in a square hole and mm -hmm. all the rest of them, squeezing, you know, this and that. So then when this happened, when the pandemic happened, I never thought of my wildest dreams. I'd be back doing this, what I'm doing with you today. I need and to interrupt day. you there for just one moment. Before okay. we get into that, I want to point something out for, for those that are listening or going to be listening. Um, what you've just described is you didn't have to enter into public service. You did it because you identified there were problems and you knew they needed to be fixed. And it sounds to me like, do you mind if I ask, how old are you now, Brian? I'll be 80 in August. You're 80 in August. You're supposed to be retired, correct? Absolutely. And yet you've become busier in the last year, I'm going to assume, than you have been in quite some time? Until I was in pre when I was premier. Okay, no so my, my wife too, every day now, eight to 11, we're fighting this, either on a program like yours, uh, on, on, a, on the phone, uh, at public meetings, I'm holding public meetings, I got two more coming up, three more, four more coming up, already organized, okay? So it takes us every day a couple of hours just to work our schedule, as you know, when, I, when you try to get me back on again after meeting me over here in Praxville. How difficult it was and, mm -hmm. and i'm and i regret that and i'm sorry for that and i apologize to you no that's regret. that's okay no oh, no 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 i apologize person to person brian to chris okay because i know it's been difficult and, and and that's not the way i usually operate but that's how busy i am that's how bloody busy i am and i'm glad to be in the fight when it's you're fighting for something real right that 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 impacts people yeah. And, and I, and I can, I can understand that. Uh, well, before I say this, I do want to say a great big, huge thank you. And this is from millions of people across Canada, because we understand that you could be retired on Vancouver Island, living your best life, relaxing and things like that. And you've chosen to get back involved because you see what's going on around you. 
you identify there's a problem, you see people suffering, and you're using your voice. So I cannot say thank you enough for that. And I do understand, kind of, your, your position. I mean, you, you were there. You spent 17 months working on this. And, and, and I'm sure you and all the other premiers, you, you didn't do all that work for nothing. You did that work because you were doing something critically significant for Canada, for the entire, entirety of Canada. And I can only imagine what it feels like to watch the, for lack of a better word, the, the, the bastardization that is happening over our rights and freedoms in the courts. Like it, it it's got to be painful. So uh, it, is, it is very painful. It's very painful. I'm living in Parksville and today there are places I can't go. Here's the guy who helped craft the Charter Rights and Freedoms in 1981, which became law in 1982. And I'm prevented from going certain places that other citizens in this city can go, go to. Now, the, the, now, the talk about irony. That's so, insane. Yeah. It's, it's insanity is what it is. It's absolute it insanity. Is. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's painful to however you want to call this, painful to our soul. S-O-U-L, however, or other, whatever, however you want to, to our identity as a person and as a Canadian, right? It's insulting and it's painful to us as people, as individuals. That's what really hurts. That's what really hurts is that you, you, you spend your time in public life and you happen to be at this place in time when these things happen and you help create it, even provide the proposal that led to the deal in the first place. Uh, and uh, know you have advanced the cause of individual, of democracy and individual rights and freedoms as a result of what you did in 81. And to see it all being filtered away by people who don't even understand the nature of our country. They even forget that Pierre Elliott Trudeau lost in court because Trudeau's name is supposed to be, he was a constitutional scholar. He's a very bright fellow. He is, you know, he is certain the media at the time, he had him in his hand. They, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And what did they worship? What did they worship? He, he left the table. He was completely untrustworthy. He was going to do it on his own without even involving us. And by the way, there were a number of premiers at the table at the time when we started, said, you know, he won't stay here. He'll be gone in a, a few months. He won't finish these negotiations. And yours truly and a couple of others said, oh, no, 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 he, he's at the table, he's going to stay at the table. We were so naive. They were so right. And then when he left the table, they said, see, we told you so, you know. And, and then they didn't even think, even though they thought he'd leave the table, even the worst of them, the, the most negative and the guys who were most enlightened about all this, never thought he would take a go to the House of Commons and pass an act and try to, to do it on his own. They thought he'd leave the table, but they didn't think he'd actually take action against us. Was one of his problems, uh, I've heard, and actually our current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has mentioned that one of his father's issues was the notwithstanding clause. Was that one of the, the, the disagreements? Yes, because we, we would not agree to the, to the, the Constitution Act unless we had some outs in it because we couldn't trust them. How do you trust somebody who just left the table and then went about passing a law to, to, to destroy you? You trust that guy and then when he comes back to the table? Oh, no, not one bit. 
Not one bit. And so what, that's why the notwithstanding clause is in there. But Justin Trudeau is using it as a, as a diversion to divert us from the other parts of the charter because the notwithstanding clause doesn't apply here. Nobody has used it. No province has used it. So it's a red, it's a red, he- a red herring by Justin to even raise it at this point. Has, hasn't Quebec tried to use it with their, that law that they, they, they just yes, recently not, put in? Yes, but not with the Constitution, not with the Charter. Oh, okay. Okay, okay not, not, not with the, uh, the pandemic, I mean. They brought, they've not used the notwithstanding clause in anything to do with the pandemic. Okay? So that's the difference. So any, any province who wants to use notwithstanding clause got to go to their parliament and get their parliament to agree. That's what nobody tells you about notwithstanding clause. So everybody gets a chance to see what it is their province is doing. They just can't do it like they're doing with the pandemic. You see, so big I'm, I'm going to, I'm not even going out on a limb here. I'm going to say categorically that there is no person in Canada who is more qualified to speak to the charter than you are. There may be some professors who are with the provincial delegations and federal delegations. A big, the saddest thing about them is that they've kept quiet through all of this. They're only ones kept quiet. So there are some former deputy ministers, former assistant deputy ministers, legal advisors to the various provincial delegations and the federal delegation who are still alive. And I just don't can't for the life of me understand why they've just been so silent. Well, so I'm the, only, I'm, I'm the only person that was involved at the time who's been vocal about the, the, the charter. I, I can guess, and my, my guess is that it's never easy to go against the status quo, and oftentimes speaking out against the government is political suicide. It really well, is. So for anybody who wants to continue eating, feeding at the trough and uh, they want their pensions and that, they don't speak up. And, 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 that's, and now, this far out, if this was only six months in, I might I might disagree with you a little. But this far out, two years coming up, almost two months, this is two years, and nobody's spoken up. I got to agree with what you just said. Yeah. How much can they watch before they decide that it's time to stand up? I mean, exactly. I guess I, I didn't have as much to lose. I had a business to lose and maybe a house, but whatever. I mean, I've I've started over before. And and I knew that when I when I went against the government and kept my restaurant open. Not that it's as significant as what some people have done, but I knew that that was the right thing to do. I knew there was something wrong and I knew people were suffering because of the government's decisions. So I stood up. I didn't have to see very much before I actually was motivated to do something. So I guess what I'm wondering is how much more do those people have to see before they start standing up? Because it it, it really doesn't take, it doesn't take a hundred people. It doesn't take 50 people. It takes... 10 or 20 professional, like significant people involved with the government to stand up and speak out and it comes down. So with all that said, um, unless you have anything else to speak on that, can we move to your comments on section one and how it's been used against people like, I, I, and I want to make that clear, how it's been used against people like me by the Absolutely. government. Okay. Well, first of all, remember, and for your listeners and, and, and viewers, the four sections of the Constitution, which are sacred to me, are Section 2, 6, 7, and 15, which detail the individual freedoms and rights you and I have. Right? Section 2, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, peacefully assemble, freedom to associate. That's Section 2. Section 6, mobility. Every Canadian has the right to travel anywhere in Canada and leave Canada. 
These are all being abused today by what the governments are doing, right? The right to travel anywhere in Canada, I can't do that now, except if I take my car and try to drive. It's the only way I can do it. I can't get on a plane or anything like that. So I'm, my, my, my rights to travel under the Constitution are being violated. So to travel, and, and the really important one, the right to pursue a livelihood anywhere in Canada. Well, how has that been violated? Right? Yeah, no kidding. And then seven, section seven, life, liberty, and security of the person. No coercion to take a jab. We have the right to security of the person. That's been violated all over the place. And security okay. of the person includes uh, mental health, does it not? Of course, the security of the person, the full, whole person. It doesn't say the physical person, right? And you're right. You're definitely right. Under any normal definition or of that, <clears throat> and then num uh, section 15, equality before the law. Every individual in Canada, every person in Canada, is equal before the law. Oh, well, I'm not equal before the law right now. We, well, yeah, I said earlier, is I, yeah, not, neither are you. So <clears throat> those are the four big, precious freedoms. Now, before I get to section one, I want to say uh, uh, two or three things. <clears throat> The whole reason for putting them in the Constitution, we could have done what John Diefenbaker did and more. If, if we wanted to leave it open so it could be changed easy, we would have just put that charter in a federal law and put that charter in the provincial laws of every province. This is really important for the judges to understand and for people to understand. We didn't do that because we wanted to put it somewhere where it was more permanent. So it couldn't be changed easy. People got to remember that. And that's what I need to tell the judges. By the way, I've signed one affidavit and the lawyer just called me before I got on this call. I got another one I get to sign tomorrow morning. So I'm putting where my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going out there, not only in talking to you and talking to people and writing letters and doing everything I can. That way, I'm going to court. I was very excited to hear that. I'm actually, uh, my organization, WSFullSteamAhead.org, um, is working with that lawyer as well. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're, I'm, I, I cannot wait to get into court. No, I can't watch the judge. I, I can't wait to see the look on his face when, when you say what you need to say to that judge. I'm, I'm excited. So that, that that's got to be remembered. The other thing has got to be remembered is that everybody's forgetting. And I forgot it early on. <clears throat> The first words of the Constitution, of the Charter, are, whereas Canada is founded on the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law, before we get to section one. And after rule of law, there's a punctuation. And what punctuation is that? Is it a period? Is it a semicolon? Is it a comma? No, it's a colon, deliberate. Everything comes after supremacy of God and the rule of law. In other words, Mr. Judge, Madam Judge, when you're considering a case which involves the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you are forced by law, by the Constitution, to do it within the framework of the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Pretty powerful stuff. Nobody talks about that. Which means? Which means supremacy of God, quite likely, I would say, if you look at the Americans' Bill of Rights and the way these things are interpreted, on inalienable rights. Never we're born, came from we're you. born with them. We're not given them. 
Exactly. And the rule of law means permanence, moral authority. So the rule of law means if you go, I get the books right here behind me, right, which I read all the time to, to, to know what I'm saying has, has substance. So before we even get into the Constitution at all, the sections, the first words of the Charter, before we get into the Charter at all, the first words of the Charter, you got to do it in this context. They're not doing that. They even have the gall to tell people who have uh, religious exemptions that their religious exemption has no merit within the law. And here we have freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, right in section two, and supremacy of God before we even get into section two. So this is the thing that, uh, um, that I've got, like I'm doing here today, deliberately emphasizing this because the, judge, the, two, the judgments that have come down so far in the Manitoba court and then the BC court don't mention it. Well, therefore, their decision is not valid because they've abused and not followed the Constitution. They've not followed the Charter, which they say they're doing a decision based on the Charter. Well, how can you do decision based on the Charter without acknowledging and putting in context that I'm, this, this decision must be done within the principles of the Charter? I can't, I haven't got the luxury to select different sections of the Charter, right? I don't have the luxury to do that. I've got to interpret all of the sections of the charter, which are applicable, mm -hmm. okay? And it's applicable in all these cases. Then <clears throat> we get into section one. And this was, you know, this was done deliberately because we knew there could be circumstances, even though this was permanent, there could be extreme circumstances where the governments would be legitimate in overriding people's rights and freedoms for a period of time, for a short period of time. And at that time when we wrote it, the intent was for extreme circumstances, given that it's a constitution, it would be war, insurrection, or the state was in peril. Now, a 99% recovery rate and a 0.08 fatality rate by a virus does not put the state in peril. Sorry. Premiers, sorry, Prime Minister, sorry, judges, the state is not in peril. <coughs> and as we know from the science now, <laughs> the cure is worse than the disease. What they brought in is worse. Dr. Douglas Allen showed that at Simon Fraser University a year and a half ago. Great Barrington Declaration showed that over a year ago. So there's no data, independent data, that supports them on their science, let alone the fact that section one does not even apply in this circumstance. And, and people are making, the mistake, people make the mistake of believing that our charter and the constitution uh, somehow gives us the right to be safe or the right to be healthy. And I've come to realize that being free, like the idea of freedom, it's not without its, it's not without its uh, costs. I mean, I look at it like a rose, right? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful idea, but there's some thorns. And the thorn is freedom means that you are free to make decisions that may harm you. You are yes. free to make decisions that will cause you to fail. That's what freedom yes. means. But people have this idea that, that freedom means equal outcomes, um, always no. being healthy, that they're, they, right. they are protected from other people being sick by forcing those people to not be members of society. And that exactly. is a big mistake. We can't have, 
the idea of freedom doesn't exist if we if we fail to recognize that it comes with a cost. Exactly, exactly. And that's what constitutions are all about. Permanent values, right? Permanent values, because we're talking about freedom and liberty and concepts which are uh, inconsistent with doing an ordinary federal law or doing an ordinary provincial law. That's the whole reason for a constitution. You're bringing the nation together under certain, some fundamental freedoms, certain fundamental principles. <coughs> this is what the judges are now failing to understand, the difference between uh, uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Bill of Rights. They're not seeing the difference. One is a federal act, the other is a constitution act. Completely different, night and day. And you're dead right on how you just described it. Now, number two, I wanted to say, so that the, the, your viewers get a full concept of section one. So what I say to the judge and what I say to lawyers and what I say in my speeches now is, okay, I'm a fair man. I'm a reasonable guy. For argument's sake, I'll take you on that it does apply, that section one does apply. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt for argument's sake, because I don't believe it applies at all. And I was there, and I know what the intent was. But okay, for argument's sake, I'm a fair guy, I'll take you on. Let's say it does apply. You've got four tests to meet, even in war and insurrection. That's why, this, that's why we have a constitution. It's got to be tough to change it. It's got to be real tough to change it. So even in war and insurrection, you still have to meet four tests. One, you have to demonstrably justify what you're doing is better than not doing anything, or it has more benefit than costs attached to it. Demonstrably justify what you're doing. <laughs> Any reasonable person in Canada today that knows anything about governments knows, and that was in my day and all since government started, that when they enact something, very often they will either internally or externally lately in the last decades, many decades, is externally do a cost-benefit analysis to well, see whether case. So that's what, that's what you would have to do to demonstrably justify that what you're doing has more benefit than cost. They didn't do that. Not one government from St. John's of Victoria to Ocala with the Niagara has done that. So they don't even meet test number one of the section one, even if it did apply. And then there are three more tests. You've got to do it by law. Well, a lot of their stuff is done by regulation under an existing law that was mm -hmm. passed 10 or 15 years ago. And, and Premier, if you're so insistent on saying this is a new situation, then give me a new law. So they all should have went to their parliaments and had to pr present a new law. That's what they should have done. That's what by law means. And I think I can persuade judges that, that that's a reasonable interpretation of by law. Thirdly, they have to do it within reasonable limits. Hallelujah. Hello. Hello. Reasonable limits. When you're changing the goalposts every second month, one month I can go in here, another month I can't, another month I can't go here, another month I can't travel here, I can travel only this way, not that way. You're changing the goalposts all the time and you're telling me reasonable limits? That doesn't fit reasonable limits in my interpretation of those two words. And then fourthly, all of those three have to be done within the context of what? A free and democratic society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, free and democratic society means you better open the problem, but you get better give the people a say 
you better establish a parliamentary committee, all you 14 governments, three two territories. Years they haven't. Two years they haven't done a damn thing on that. So they haven't even met test four because what they're doing is not consistent with the free and democratic society. So I, I, I like I say, I'm a fair person. Okay, section one does apply. But even if it does apply, you haven't met any of the four tests. So what you're doing is unconstitutional. No question about it. Do you know how I know that what they're doing is wrong? If they were, if they knew what they were doing was right and was justified and could be backed up in the courts, they wouldn't have to have legislation that allows them to go and get an ex parte injunction against me. If exactly. they're right and they would win, I should be allowed to face my accusers in court and present my case and be exactly right. Good point. That's uh, I'll, give, I'll give you another reason. I wrote all the premiers two months ago now, or almost three months ago, saying, Hey, premiers, if you're so sure that everything you're doing is constitutional here's a way for you to prove it to all your people i was waiting for this refer to your highest court you every province and the federal government has the power tomorrow morning through just an order and council of their cabinet to refer the covid measures to their highest court and ask them for a constitutional ruling i wrote them all guess what not one of them will do it they're scared why wouldn't they do it? Well, you think they'd love to be able to show the people that everything they're doing is constitutional, wouldn't you? They know they'll lose. They'll know they know they are on very shaky ground. And that I would say in most cases, 80 to 90% of what they're doing would be proven to be unconstitutional. What would be proven to be quite like the constitution for a period of time were a few minor things, right? Very minor things that wouldn't encroach upon the your charter rights and freedoms. So that's the reason they, 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 their, their measures would be eviscerated. So um, you, you were talking about the separation of the federal and provincial powers. And I think it's interesting to point out that a lot of the things that are happening in Canada right now, uh, let's take the mandates for um, truckers and CN rail workers. Uh, CN rail workers hits close to home because my family is, works for companies contracted to CN and they're affected by this. The federal government has put mandates in that say, because they are a federally regulated industry, the, you have to have these mandates. However, the, pro, the anything that's under provincial jurisdiction hasn't had that. And that's why. It's because the federal government can't tell the provinces that they exactly. have to impose these mandates on anything the provinces are responsible for. Uh, exactly. One of which is the administration of healthcare, I believe. Right, exactly. so um, in, in Alberta, Alberta Health Services workers are mandated to get uh, the COVID-19 vaccination multiple times, perpetually, I'm going to assume, to keep their jobs. Um, that's not coming from the federal government. That's from the provincial government. But the rest of it, and, and the way they're putting pressure on us, is by using federally regulated or administered um, industries or, or right. sectors to yes. try and squeeze as hard as they can to push their will on the people. No question. But, and here's, here's the other point I'd like to make. Um, you mentioned how the constitution is difficult to change and it's there, it's supposed to be solid and, and, and uh, long lasting so that we have our freedoms. If we allow our governments to use, to twist things and use the constitution and use the charter to remove rights and freedoms and we allow them to do it easily, we no longer live in a free country. 
If we live in a country where it's easy to take our freedoms, we live under the illusion of freedom. And that's not what Canada is supposed to be. We're supposed you to be got, free. I, I can't say it any better. <clears throat> you, 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 perhaps, of all the people that have interviewed me now, we're getting into hundreds, I guess, you have perhaps have articulated the best. You understand it deeply. You understand it correctly. <coughs> I don't know if I sent you, I might have sent you <coughs> a personal declaration I did a few weeks ago. It's going to be posted on a lot of different websites across the country. Um, and I made that point in there that if we allow the governments to succeed on that, then the charter is no more. Your freedoms and individual freedoms are no longer guaranteed because the next time some kind of an event comes along, the governments want to declare it an emergency. They can use this as a precedent. So the and this becomes, this becomes the precedent for them being able to do it again. So exactly. the guarantee that we thought we had by putting it in the constitution is gone. So here's the question that I'd like to ask anybody who's on the fence. Do you want to live in a free country or do you want to live under the illusion of freedom? Because we've pretty much laid it out plainly for you. Right now we live under the illusion that we're free. Right. Um, and if you're not okay with that, regardless of whether the, regardless of your position on a vaccine or your position on COVID or your position on anything, you need to ask yourself if you are prepared to live like that, because if it's me today and, and, and Mr. Peckford today, it will, it will be you tomorrow because well, I'm even, fairly certain, even. my understanding of history suggests that as governments get more and more and more power, it's very easy to take it, or it's very difficult to take it back from them. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. And even today, and some of these people are on the fence, sure, even the, 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 the double vaccinated are considered to be not the same as those who go and get the booster. You know, if you don't get the booster, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not, you can't, can't keep your job in certain countries now. That's how bad it's gotten. So even if you introduce the, the medicine and the medical side into it, and a lot of these people are not protected anymore and still don't have the rights they thought they were going to gain by being double vaccinated, because now you, that's not enough anymore. But in any case, to go back to your basic point, which I think is, is the one that should be made <clears throat> advanced the most, is that do you want freedom or do you not? You know, because if you want to live in a free country, then you've got to defend the charter rights and freedoms. And freedom always comes with a price. Always comes from a price. As, as people say, democracy also equals responsibility. You can't take anything for granted. You've got to keep working on it. Democracy is the most fragile of governance systems in the world. The majority of people in the world have never lived under democracy. Why? Because it's tough. It's tough to, to, <laughs> to sustain a democracy, right? Athens couldn't sustain it back in 595 BC. Rome through Cicero tried a little bit of it. They never did have full democracy there, but Cicero brought a little semblance of it to it when the Senate was operating in Rome, right? But it failed, right? And so on through history, right? up, And then the whole world failed. And we went into a very dark age, right? From when the Roman, the Roman Empire fell, whatever year you want to take, six, 700 AD, <clears throat> right through to about 1200 AD. And then we gradually came out of the feudal period back into an, an era of what later became the age of reason, the age of enlightenment. <clears throat> but also that period, there wasn't very many democracies. There were none, zero. Well, so, so here we are.
and the, lar- the longest serving democracy right now is the, the United States. And so, and the uh, Freeman, Freedom Watch, an independent agency, has shown that over the last 17 years, democracy has declined every year on the planet. I can speak so that's to that. The way we're headed. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this before. It's quite controversial, and some people, they look at me funny, but I've said on more than one occasion that true democracy is not the fastest, but it is the easiest path to communism. And the reason I say that is because as people, as time goes on, um, authority can do little things here and there to slowly strip back freedoms, and they can have it done democratically, as in people, they actually vote to give up their rights in the name of safety or the name of whatever. Um, The United States is a little bit different, as as you well know, because the United States has some core foundational laws that cannot be changed short of I mean, it, it's almost miraculous if the United States changes those laws. So a republic, a democratic republic, based on a core foundation of law, that even if 90% of the, of the country says, well, you know, all of a sudden, we're going to say it's, uh, it's okay to uh, storm restaurants and steal their food on January 4th. Every year, we can do that. That's law. And we, we said it democratically, so we're going to do it. The law says, no, you can't. Because regardless of what democracy says, this yeah. is the law. But in Canada, we don't have that. So it becomes ultimately important to protect the democracy that we've created for ourselves. And and like you said, if we don't stand, it it comes with a responsibility. We have a responsibility um, to participate in the democratic society and prevent these things from happening. Uh, Because we don't don't have that core to stand on. We now see how fragile it all is, don't we? Because we're 114 years and didn't have a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms or Bill of Rights. 114 years. Got it. Very difficult. 70 months of negotiations with one of the participants leaving the table and going and trying to do it on their own and, and losing and then having coming back to the table. And only 40 years later, it's under unbelievable attack. So that's a, that history is alone tells you just how fragile what it is we're talking about as freedom and democracy is. So it is just hanging by a thread. And uh, in most countries, uh, and most countries don't have it at all, it's hanging by a thread in Israel today. It's hanging by a thread in France today and Germany. And we see what's happened in Austria and Germany in these places. You know, have they really changed all that much? Have they really changed? They were very quick to go to the authoritarian way, weren't they? When things got, when the rubber hit the road, when it got a little bit tough, they weren't there to sustain democracy. They were there to sustain authority. Yes. So exactly. people should be able to see from what's happening now how fragile this is. And, and that's why we're arguing, you and me, the way we are, because we understand history and we understand what's happened in the last 40 years. The mere fact that the whole thing got, uh, the, got a myth grew up around how the, the the uh, Constitution Act came together in 82 is also proof positive how, how, how slender democracy is. They were able to malign me and malign my story and all the books got written completely contrary to what really happened and all the stuff never got really released until 2012 when I wrote my book. So we can see through various avenues, mine and many others, just how fragile all this is. We only got 40 years out of this. And, and by the way, during those 40 years, there were all kinds of attacks in the court against it. I've got two or three books here 
uh, detailing it. One by the Charter Revolution and the Court Party by Morton and Knopf out of uh, Alberta, right? The book which started to detail what was happening to to the the Charter, right? And that was written in um, uh, let me see, where is it? 1985? Just <laughs> three years after they could see things happening. Right, and so it's been under attack ever since it's been passed, and now the big attack is on using an alleged pandemic, right, and creating fear and and, and using faulty science. Right, nobody can justify masks scientifically. Nobody can justify the PCR test scientifically. It's scientifically a fraud, but they're still using these government um, um, narratives, which select what they want to select and ignore what they want. I went to the Parksville Council two day, the last two days and asked for, for them to give me a chance to make a, my, uh, to make a presentation. They turned me down. They're just bringing in a mandate now for all of their employees to be vexed. They're starting to back away, I think, this morning a little bit because there's so many people against it. But I asked them, would you allow me to appear? I, I'm a resident of your town. I'm a taxpayer of your town. You allow me to appear to present make a presentation of the constitution given i'm the only living first minister who's around who was at that table you might be interested well i had to say no nope. that's how far we've gone wow i'm sure they'd be very interested to see the video i did with dr peter mccullough last night yeah um, he's basically saying and lots of other doctors are saying the vaccines at this point are useless because we're in omicron and omicron has broken through both natural immunity and and right. vaccinated immunity and it's not very serious so just get over it COVID's done and yet they're exactly. still pushing they're still pushing the same narrative and really exactly. those I vaccines were for a completely different uh, disease yeah. I, I wouldn't have as much of a problem with this if our health authorities were saying hey you should get vaccinated and they've been doing that with the flu shot for years i wouldn't have a problem with them doing that as long as they were allowing people informed consent and they weren't exactly. trying to push people around that's right. my problem here. I don't have a problem. Well, I, I personally, I don't think the vaccine is safe for me and I will choose to take which risk I choose. It's my right. Um, but I, I still believe that if we should be allowing people to make their own choices. Uh, couldn't agree more. That's, that's democracy. As yeah, as, as the charter intended and where we're at right now, um, we're, we're to a point now where it's not only just about a vaccine. Now we're allowing people we're encouraging people to discriminate against their friends and neighbors and segregate their, their, their society yep. based on this. So we're going right, we're going right out into left field and, and actually breaking laws that we've been fighting to uphold for, for years. Like the civil rights movement, that hasn't ended. We always fight for that. And now we're encouraging bullying, harassment, discrimination, segregation. It's yep. sickening. So what do you, what's, what's your thoughts on a solution here? Like what, where, where do we go? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> I was saying in one interview yesterday that uh, <clears throat> if you look at it on the legal side and the court side, uh, it's, it's now the courts of appeal, the highest courts in the province, which, which these things are going to go to. And let's assume this is what usually happens. There's at least four provinces where this thing goes to their courts of appeal and then the Supreme Court of Canada. Those, the chief judges, the chief justice of the province is the head judge of the courts of appeal, not the Queen's bench and all that. That's lower. 
people don't understand the court system either. It's the courts of appeal. So let's say it's four provinces and the chief judge chooses, say, four to be a panel to hear these charter cases. Four times four is 16. And then these appeals go to the Supreme Court of Canada where there's nine. 25 people are likely to decide the fate of democracy in our nation over the next couple of years. Jeez. 25 people, unelected of course, appointed judges are likely to decide the fate of our democracy, the fate of our charter of rights and freedoms. That's where we are. So what do we do about it? Perhaps the most effective thing is the thing that Canadians want to do least, and that is get out on the streets. If tomorrow morning, civil disobedience, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, whoever else, if between two and 5,000, more likely 5,000, turned out in every provincial legislature, every Saturday for the next eight weeks, 10 weeks, I wouldn't think you might even have to go that long. But if every Saturday, right from St. John's to Victoria, and at every provincial legislature, there were five to 10,000 people out, the governments would back down. And at the same time, those judges left to decide would be thinking twice about what their lower court judges said. That's the best chance we have, both politically and legally to change the present trajectory to be more in our favor. It's going to take civil disobedience, which is a great principle of democracy. But unfortunately, it's a, I don't see any other way. It's an it's an un-Canadian thing. I mean, people have been raised to, well, just I guess probably in the last 40, 50 years, they've been raised to be comfortable in their homes and just follow the rules and take the easy path and be slightly apathetic and drink their beer and watch sports at night, right? Exactly. And that's, they still don't get the gravity of the situation. That's the big problem. Like my mayor, I wrote him back again this morning, telling me you, you, you really haven't read anything. You know, you're, you're really not, it's terrible. And uh, quite a few other citizens, by the way, have been mobilized to write them as well. And I think we're, we, we, we could get changes. I think there's already some changes in the, in the works, it looks like. But in any case, there's too many like the mayor of my city. And the council, and I've only heard from one councillor out, out of the seven of them, I've heard from two, the mayor and one councillor. I haven't even got an acknowledgement that I wrote the others. And now they've got about three things from me in the last three days. So that's the nature of our apathy, even at the, even at the elective level of the municipal council. Okay? I've been talking to MLAs all over the country, and I'm talking to, today's Tuesday, I'm talking to another group of MLAs tomorrow. I talked to a group yesterday. It's abysmal. It is shocking. Talking to MLAs is like talking to a brick wall. They have no idea of what the even what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is. And never made it their business to find out, given that they're now an elected member of a provincial legislature. They should know what it's all about. They should make themselves known. And they're and they've when they take that position, they're charged with enacting laws on our behalf. Exactly. That's the whole point. Exactly. And therefore, and they got to be consistent with the charter. So they should be, you know, they should, I don't understand any case, but that's where it is. And I'm speaking to another group tomorrow and I'm sure I'll have the same impression.
because I've had I've had MPs, members from the Ontario Provincial Legislature, call me, and I've spent like a lot of time with them going through all this. They just still don't get the gravity of it. They still don't get the gravity of it. And we're trying now. I'm chairman of um, Taking Back Our Freedoms, a new organization. Two guys out of Alberta helped form it, and we've got all of the the big high-powered people on our board. George and Roy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, George and Roy. And we've got all the high-powered people on our board, uh, medical people from Dr. Bridal to, to Dr. Payne to, to Dr. Hodgson to Dr. Panessa, all of them, you know, are on our board. Uh, and we're going to try to, across the country, mobilize people to f- go to their MLAs and force their MLAs to meet them and put the pressure on <clears throat> That's what we're doing now as we speak. <clears throat> and it's very important. And I'm the chairman of that organization, and we're up and running now, and the the website is up there and so on but it is a it is a it is it is heavy slogging it's a daunting task it's a daunting task yeah but i don't see any other route uh, chris out of it than uh, the people mobilizing and uh, exercising their right of diso- civil disobedience to appear before these legislatures and force these governments to know that they're not they're the majority of the people are not with them and they've got to change and when I do these Zoom meetings and when I'm there in person, there is a sense, right, that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, Shakespeare. Absolutely. They sense it. They can't articulate it. And then when they get up to the microphone afterwards, and I've explained like I did today, all those sections and what section one really means. And even if it applies, it doesn't because they haven't met the test. Right? They're trying to put a round peg in a square hole. They're trying to squeeze their authority into something where it doesn't belong, they get it. And then their questions, they, they start to illuminate and elaborate upon it. And, and some people have actually said to me at the microphone, uh, Brian or Mr. Peckford, whatever, I hope I can hold this. I haven't got it written down, but I hope I can hold this history and this idea because while you're saying it and what I'm talking about, I got it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if I can hold it because I'm not educated or I'm not into this that much, you know. But when you explain it the way you've explained it, I really understand it and I get it, right? And, it's, and I want and I want to hold on to it. And it's not just something like for me personally, it's not just something that I I understand here. I feel it. Yes. Like I I could before I could articulate in my head what exactly the problem was that I thought I felt something was wrong long well, before what, I thought that's about where they, it. That's where they are. They had felt it. And that's why they were at the meeting. And then when they got it explained to them in a, in a rational basis, based upon the laws of the country, then of course it confirmed that their belly was right. We're going to have to go. Yeah, this has been, uh, we're a little longer than we thought, but it's been, it's been awesome. Yeah. And I've, I've got a couple more meetings coming up. So that's the reason I got to go. Okay, absolutely. Well, if there's anything I can do to help you, um, you let me know, and uh, I'll I'll give you the pledge that WS Full Steam Ahead will be behind you and supporting you 100. percent Yeah, thank you, sir, very much, and I I hope I've uh, lived up to uh, uh, my my promise of uh, coming on with you again, even though it was difficult in trying to arrange it all. No, because I really appreciate it. Because and you're I, you're a good person and you're a good man, and you keep up. Well, thank you. 
I, I would like, I'm supposed to say hi from Jessica too. She was really excited that I was going to be talking with you again because uh, she's one of your biggest fans. So just so okay. you know. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Peckford, and have a great day. See you again, my friend. You bet.